Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani on Twitter. And today I have the great pleasure of being joined by senior editor of Navarra Media, James Butler, at Pierce Panelist. Hi, James. Hi. We're also joined today by Marina Prentus, at Prentus. Hello, Marina. Hi. And Lindsay German, at Lindsay A. German. Hello, Lindsay. Hello. Uh, Today we'll be discussing Europe, the EU and the future of Britain. That's within both the former, a larger family of nations bound by geography, history and culture, and the latter a 27-member state organisation, Britain's membership of which will be subject to a referendum in July this year, I believe. Today's show forms part of our Europe Week, where we try to not only examine the arguments for staying in and leaving the European Union, but also foster a deeper understanding of the history of the organisation, its instincts, and how it fits within a 21st century defined by crises, both demographic and economic. James, I'll start with you. We made a video released earlier this week where... I argued to leave and you argued to remain. Why do you think Britain, very quickly, should stay in the European Union? Well, (laughs) um, I should probably begin by saying that I am actually by instinct extremely sceptical of the European Union. I I think many of the traditional left-wing arguments on its makeup, on its sort of economic orientation, are very, very strong. Um, In this case, I think, however, that that we're not being offered a a wide degree of political choice in the referendum. The idea that it's a choice between a a sort of neoliberal vote to stay in and anti-neoliberal vote to exit, that doesn't seem to me to be the the political decision that we're faced with. We're faced with essentially a very, very narrow choice between two things. Um, The the major... um, uh, the major influence on my thinking is this question of, of the migrant crisis, and I, I wrote <laughs> at great length on this for uh, for Navarra uh, on Sunday, and uh, including an extensive section. Um, Seventeen pages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, have a habit of going on. Um, but the the so it seems to me that there is very little uh, that that can be said against the idea that this vote. Um, should be judged primarily in the zone of its immediate political effects. And that is partly to almost certainly be to reinforce uh, a tide of xenophobic sentiment across Europe. It will be interpreted by the media as an isolationist vote, uh, a racist vote. And the polling polling tells us that that this is the way that it's being thought of um, by many in the exit camp across Britain. So so there's really some questions here about whether, whether it would be possible to change the say, political tone of an exit vote in another direction. I don't see that as being possible before June 23rd, which is the, the date of the... Well, it's June, I said July, didn't I? My apologies for <laughs> um, inaccuracy. So, so the idea, the idea that, that, you know, so, so what we're being offered here is, is, you know, continued membership in what is inarguably a neoliberal project. I think that you know, I wouldn't want to contest that. But equally, we're, we're being offered an exit predicated on neoliberal arguments, offering sort of these freedoms that are keyed to kind of business deregulation, uh, you know, greater flexibility of labor, which, of course, means deeper exploitation, um, there's another and, and tied to a range of reactionary measures. It's unquestionable that, say, Cameron's negotiation was uh, primarily aimed at satisfying uh, a deeply reactionary <coughs> English vote uh, against, uh, you know, primarily, uh, you know, against migration. Uh, and ag- again, uh, England is notable for for its hostility to migration, even within. European Union. So, so I'm very sceptical of, of any claim that a British exit would be some kind of sort of red flare from the north to the Mediterranean countries to spark uh, an anti-neoliberal revolt. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Rock in a hard place. A lot of people, I think, sharing your opinion, probably say the same thing. Maria, you're also inclined to... Agree. 
agreed to, for <laughs> yes. Britain to stay in. Uh, why is that? Yes, and again, I have to start by saying that there is a lot of things that they are wrong with the European Union. And I start from quite a sceptical position as well. But when it comes uh, to Britain, I think I cannot see any way that uh, a Brexit will be useful for uh, the left here and the, the European left more broadly. Also, when we look at the uh, refugee crisis, as you were saying, probably this is one of the reasons why I would say we should have a union, not probably the union that we have, that as we see it right now, it's full of nationalism and fascism, fascisms that emerging, but a union which will allow us to deal with uh, the refugee flows uh, in a different humanitarian and legal way much differently. Lindsay, you're of the opposing view. I am, and I suppose I should start as well by saying that obviously I don't oppose the EU for the reasons that Nigel Farage or indeed David Cameron do. That I believe in the free movement of people. I think people should be able to come to this country from wherever in the world. And one of my complaints, I suppose, about the idea of EU migration taken separately is that it does discriminate actually against people from India, from Pakistan, from Africa, from many other parts. But I suppose when we look at this, I don't believe for a minute that uh, exit or indeed staying in will will necessarily lead to uh, improvements for the left in terms of politics. But I do have to query the idea, firstly, that the EU can be reformed. It isn't a democratic structure. The European Parliament, which we all go through the charade of voting for once every five years, actually has less powers than the Scottish Parliament. And therefore, I think we should, we should reject that argument. There is no way of reforming other than electing... 28 left governments across the whole of the EU, which could back up, for example, the kind of policies that Syriza had and which we know didn't happen because in the end of the day, it's the national governments who decide. So I think that's a very big question which the pro-EU left have to answer. I also think if we look, to be honest, at the refugee crisis, the European Union is making this, Euro this refugee crisis worse that it's being driven by the right-wing parties in Finland, in Hungary, uh, in Slovenia and Slovakia, those sorts of places, who are either trying to force Greece, which has suffered enough, to keep all the refugees there, or send them back to Turkey, a country where there isn't proper democracy. Somebody might respond to that and say, but the EU's changed so much since the Treaty of Rome, 1957 obviously the EEC and then the European, it's changed so much. Why can't those institutions be reformed in a more democratic manner, in a more accountable way? Why can't certain competences go to the European Parliament, for instance? If you look, it's only changed from above, actually, mm. that all of the, the enlargements actually have, have been a method of bringing in various countries around Europe into the central sort of core. And this was firstly, you know, countries like Greece, Spain and Portugal suffered dictatorship and were brought in as part of the supposed democratisation process. Most importantly, the accession in 2004 with the East European countries actually um, was a means of bringing them in on very unfavourable terms. Lots of inward investment from Germany and other of the big powers forced to sign up to NATO. And uh, you've look at it and you see, I, I regard many of these European states actually as an almost sort of permanent um, reactionary 
element within the EU uh, in in all sorts of different ways. So I, I don't really buy that one that it's they've been able to do that over the years. So James, th- there's the response that it can't be reformed. I think Lindsay's got a pretty hard-headed, pragmatic attitude around the EU, as as you both do. I think it's yeah. fair to say. Can it be reformed? Um, I'm very sceptical of the chances of reform. Um, I think almost inevitably any sort of serious left-wing project in Europe will have to take on directly the EU and probably um, that conflict would result in its disintegration. Um, and so, or certainly it's, uh, you know, disintegration from its current form. Um, and I don't, I don't disagree with uh, any of the, that kind of potted history of its enlargement. The enlargement has always been top-down. It has always been... Um, it, and it has always been largely in the interest of its kind of hegemonic economic powers. That's one of the, the stories that, that we have to examine here is, is actually the idea that, uh, you know, that, that the EU is really anything other than uh, deeply unequal in the way that it applies its regulations. Instance here, of course, is the number, the, the amount of state support, for instance, that Germany gives to its domestic industries, and in particular the automobile industry, or sort of high quality technological manufacturing. Um, they have been fined many, many, many times by European Union, um, European Union bodies, and they're willing to pay those fines because it's, you know it's part of their sort of economic hegemony. This is also true, in fact, of the way that uh, Germany and France both treated the Stability and Growth Pact after the turn of the millennium. They happily ignored its rules because they were uh, risking sort of economic downturn. So, th- so there's some really, really important questions of kind of the way that political and economic power operates within the, the European Union. My suggestion, however is that actually, if we recognise those disparities of power, the question of sort of what happens when you have uh, left governments elected in those core nations rather than at the European periphery, that becomes interesting. And that's, that will almost certainly start. To, so imagine, so the question here, for instance, is imagine that Britain does stay in the EU, which I think is probably quite likely. I think that's actually probably the way the vote's going to go. I think it's probably closer than what the polling suggests. This, the polling suggests that it's going to be an uncomplicated vote. I don't think it is. I think it's going to be a lot closer than people expect. Uh, and it's changeable. One of the things that the polling tells us is actually people's opinion on the EU is very, very changeable. They don't feel strongly committed to either in or out. And I think I think that's actually also quite important. Um, let's imagine here, and this is now a series of hypotheticals, let's imagine that Britain stays in and then manages to elect somehow a left government led by Corbyn in 2020, um, possibly in coalition with various other left-ish forces. Now, there are immediate problems. There are immediate problems in enacting any left-wing programme here. And, you know, we would think of Mitterrand, for instance, um, uh, and his sort of problems of trying to enact essentially a sort of Keynesianism in one country, um, you know, uh, really confronting actually serious problems of globalised capital here. And it the EU would almost certainly make moves against the government that tried to do that. But it's not been tried. It's not been tried in uh, as, as prominent a country as Great Britain, as sort of key to sort of European economic functioning. The other question here is really, is, is really about you know, what that kind of conflict would produce. And I think it would be a much more productive conflict, um, even if it resulted in the disintegration of the European Union, than an exit as we have now, which is predicated... Uh, on on these kind of sort of questions of sort of right wing uh, state sovereignty migration uh, things like that. I just want to respond to this before we yeah. go to Marina. 
on the same question. I mean, you're saying no great powers tried this before. I mean, France has tried it, well, not twice, one and a half times. Yeah. Hollande was no meter on, but the promise was when he was elected uh, was a very different kind of economy to that of Sarkozy, more state intervention, more dirigisme. Mm-hmm. never happened. Yeah. For the same kinds of reasons, all uh, not as strongly with, with what we saw with Mitterrand, there were forces beyond, beyond you know, beyond outside of France, which mm-hmm. simply wouldn't allow that for various fiscal monetary reasons. So if France can't do it, why can Britain? I mean, they're far I more don't think, I don't think Britain can do it alone. And I, think, I don't think Britain can do it alone. If there were to be a, uh, a left-wing government elected in Britain, <clears> it would be as part of a, as it almost certainly have to be as part of a shift in European politics. Um, I have serious questions about whether any of these things are likely to happen in the near future, actually. I don't have a particularly hopeful political prognosis. The other, you know, what I would suggest is that that, 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 however, is a more positive program than a kind of sort of, uh, you know, uh, pessimistic thought that, you know, maybe Europe could sort itself out if Great Britain and its traditionally baleful influence in Europe could just be extracted. Um, Although this is occasionally something that... um, that, that, uh, members of the, of the EU and the European South think. Um, the other question, of course, is, is about uh, the political instability that would result in Britain, whether that would be something that a left formation could take advantage of. Um, I am maybe a little sceptical about that. It would certainly lead to questions about Scotland's place in the UK, um, given that, that the Scottish popular opinion seems much more inclined to Europe. The other Welsh way, as well. Yeah. The other, the, other, the other way is also possible. So let's imagine that um, it turns out that actually the population of England votes for exit, but a Scottish vote actually tips the balance and keeps the UK and the EU. Then this almost certainly helps build English political resentment, which I, which I think is very fertile terrain for the right. So lots of uh, potential scenarios here. Marina, can yes. the EU be reformed? Can the institutions be democratised? Well, that's what we have been discussing for some time now, and there are different ways of approaching the question. A lot of people focus on the legal framework that exists in the EU, but I think when they're discussing the treaties, what they're doing, they're cherry-picking particular cases, bad cases, where it shows that there are serious problems. Nevertheless, I wouldn't go down the legal argument, first of all, because I've learned not to uh, down and talk too much with <laughs> lawyers, <laughs> but also because it's not only a legal question. It's a, it is a political question, and we have, again, to differentiate and discuss if we are talking about the politics of the EU, the economics of the EU, and how um, they come together. I think, and again, I don't want to sound over-optimistic about what will happen in the future, but I can see a strategy that the left could have in relation to uh, reforming the EU. So, if if you allow me to go a little bit back to the Greek case, case with Syriza and what we've learned, and I still feel bruised, I have to say. Um, what happened is that certain institutions of the European Union, like the uh, European Central Bank, for example, they didn't act in relation to the treaties. So where they were supposed to act in an impartial way and provide stability for the Union as a whole, actually, they took a very political uh, approach and they stopped liquidity in Greece, which was forcing Syriza to accept the referendum. And it was a way saying, no, you're going to do what we say it was a coup. It was a coup in that way. But it wasn't because of there wasn't provisions and different um, 
provisions in uh, the treaties. It was because it was a political decision. The European Central Bank took a political role. So I believe in politics. I believe the power to reform it, if such a power exists, is in our politics. And the only way that I see forward is to, although as Lindsay said, it's, it's quite difficult to have 28 uh, left governments, it is these governments that they have right now the power in the European Union and of course international capital which is above everything else. So I think our way, my way, it will be to say, yes, let's try to change the balance of powers in the European Union by uh, voting for left governments, uh, Labour government in Britain with uh, Corbyn, for example, and let's start working in there. Having said that, I want to say something else as well, that for me, what will be also important is how we are going to bridge different levels. Uh, so what the role of the European movements will play, how they will connect with left parties, that they will change this uh, balance of powers within the European Union, and they will have an influence on a transnational level. But seriously, I see the future of progressive politics on happening on this transnational level. I don't want a Britain which will be out, isolated, and probably we should discuss also how Britain is seen from the rest of the European Union and what role has it plays and how it has connected or not with other left European forces. In terms of democratisation mm -hmm. of the EU, though, I mean, what leverage do the peoples of Europe have in this? It doesn't mean if you look at this historically, if you're talking in terms of a liberal democracy, you can remove a government at the level of the nation state if they don't do what they say they're going to do. In mm -hmm. pre-liberal democracy nation state, obviously there's the threat of revolution, contentious protest repertoires. Mm -hmm. I mean, what leverage do, in this context is pretty new? I mean, the only sort of parallel I can think of is is pre-civil war United States. I mean, that doesn't end well. Obviously, that will not play out again here. But as a polity <clears throat> and mm -hmm. the problems going on. <clears throat> And the absence of representation in a number of ways and the kind of conflicts of two diverse political economies here, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I don't see what leverage that can have. I mean, how would that be achieved? But can we approach it in a different way? Yeah. So, in my view, what we see as a democratic deficit in the European Union, it's not very different from the democratic deficit you have with liberal democracies anyway. So... What we are doing as the left is even within this very broken type of electoral systems that we have across Europe, we are staying there and we are trying to fight and, and, and change certain things. I think that's how I would think of what will happen on the international level. So we talk about democratic deficit. Okay, fine. There are elections. You, we said the uh, elections for European Parliament, but also we have to remember that the EU Commission and the EU President, they are nominated by national governments, mm. by reactionary right-wing neoliberal uh, governments. So I think what we have first to start from is from bottom up. And this is what we have. So we have to remember that it is the same broken system as we have in national governments. 
Except there's a very, very important difference, which is that you can, as Aaron says, you can actually get rid of governments. It has been done in this country. It has been done outside of an election period. It can be done. There is no comparable way of doing it uh, at a European level. And I think that, you know, I think all the arguments that are put, and I agree with many of the arguments that, that Marina has put in terms of the uh, in terms of the role of movements internationally, the, the crucial way in which the left has to sort of join up, not just across Europe, but internationally in general, I think is all is all very, very important. But you don't need to be in the European Union to do this. Uh, it happened, if you look actually, that Britain's highest point of industrial struggle and uh, politics in terms of left-wing politics in recent decades was in the 1970s, before well, most of it before we joined the uh, European Union. Actually, Italy had a very, very similar uh, level of strikes and, and so on at the time. And actually, people did have all sorts of links. There was a revolution in Portugal. People from all over Europe went there and they had a camp where we all stayed and did all that kind of thing. Because people can link up on that level. I'm absolutely in favour of it. But it doesn't need this neoliberal institution. And the question about Jeremy Corbyn, if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister of this country... Which we all hope... Which we all hope he does. The first thing that will happen to... Well, there's many things that will happen to him. No doubt NATO will have something to say about it. No doubt the military in this sure, country... Sure, MI5 will have something to Yes, that's right. Well. But we know that TTIP, which is going through, will prevent future governments from nationalising or from easily or, or cheaply nationalising without paying billions in compensation to private companies. We know you're not allowed to have a health service on those sorts of grounds. So I think all those questions are very big questions. And in terms of what's happening in Europe overall, uh, Marina obviously uses the, the example of Greece, which is the sharpest in terms of the attacks on working people. But, you know, in France, they've been demonstrating mm -hmm. this week because the so-called socialist government is trying to tear up the agreements on employment, make it easier to sack people. All these things, these are going on. The European Union not only doesn't protect people from these, actually is encouraging these developments. But let... Sorry, I jumped in. Yeah, jump in. Shall I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but let's think where we will be in a case of Brexit in this uh, country. So there will be negotiations for new trade uh, treaties. And these trade treaties, that they will be negotiated between UK and other uh, countries, they will be uh, overseen under other mechanisms, investor state dispute settlements and things like that, where you have their bodies that they are constituted by people who are pro-business, if they are not lawyers of big multinationals. And of course, I don't think that they are going to uh, create these agreements for the favour of the people, the working people of uh, Britain. So we are dealing with multinational powers and I don't think this is going to stop because Britain is going to exit the European Union. I think what it will happen is that we will find ourselves in a much uh, less weaker, in a more weaker position. Yeah, I mean I, I think... I think the point on TTIP is well made and it's one that should be made more strongly. It's one that actually pro-Europeans have to deal with a bit better. I don't think exit is actually necessarily a solution to that kind of international agreement. In fact, particularly exit under this government almost certainly puts us in hoc to as exploitative and as, uh, you know, uh, uh, paralysing uh, an agreement. However, um, one of the other things I wanted to say is, is that so... Uh, 
when thinking about the possibility of reform uh, of both the European Union's sort of rather laughable democratic so-called institutions, um, as well as the, the structure of the Union as a whole, there, there is the question of treaty renegotiation, and that's a, a question that, that uh, pro-Europe movements don't necessarily <laughs> deal with very well because it's a hugely complex issue. Um, but let's also think about it, it, some of the stuff that happened in the European Parliament immediately in the wake of the Maastricht Treaty, which was that, that point at which you know the, this sort of uh, very, very pro-market neoliberal orientation was written into the DNA of, the, of Europe's institutions. In the wake of that, in, through to the mid-90s, you have an unusual situation in the European Parliament in which actually the European Socialists are doing pretty well. Uh, there's Jean-Pierre Coe from, uh, from France and um, uh, Pauline Green uh, as the European MEP, uh, as an MEP for North London, as it was at the time. Uh, and, you know, and prior to, to the, the Blair government in the UK. And, and these, you know, both of the, under both of these people... Uh, and in this unusual situation of relative dominance within the European Parliament, not very usual for, for the left to have that, um, there is the attempt to roll back some of the the, the agenda of Maastricht and to, to reinstitute some kind of uh, functional social chapter. Um, and it, it just doesn't work. The, the, the Parliament has extremely effective neutralising uh, methods and techniques and Green in particular was undermined by having to defend uh, huge, huge, huge corruption among various uh, European commissioners. So this is this is a problem of negotiating and moving in these institutions, uh, and it's not one that to which there is necessarily an easy argument. What I would suggest is perhaps that this was more difficult in a time where most of these. Uh, Member states were basking in the wake of kind of credit glut, and it was sort of more or less boom time and coming out of sort of coming out of a period of like severe social strife and into sort of the the rather sort of ersatz uh, uh, prime of kind of the the early Blair governments. But but you know, I, and that that economic climate is very very different now. And so one wonders would a similar attempt. Uh, provoke a slightly different, slightly different conflictual reaction. The other thing, of course, is that there are there are lots of you know rather worrying right wing anti neoliberals. So these people who are saying you know we're against the EU because we actually want to go back to an even more uh, regressive and horrifying uh, uh, state of things. So all of these things are in play in any attempt to reform those institutions. On that TTIP point, um, I mean, as they keep you know, as uh, many people who probably disagree with our politics would say, James, like, why are you doing Britain, Dan? <laughs> On the TTIP point, you know, we're in the G8, we're in the G20. If Britain was to leave the EU, it's a big country on the world stage. I mean, for the people on the left, especially coming from our anti-imperialist background, that's hard to say, but it's true. And they've got a lot of, you know, disproportionate leverage in changing a whole range of multinational institutions, World Bank, WTO, as well as, yeah, G8, G20, the Security Council, right? If you had a left-wing government outside the EU. And I think, actually, it would have far more leverage far more influence on the world stage outside the EU than within it in terms of changing these institutions. So you're saying, well, if we leave the EU... Well, for instance, at the moment, Britain, in terms of its trade policy, I've said this so many times on the show, the EU, the European Commission, does that competence is with the Commission. It's unelected, it's unaccountable. Mm. The EU, Japan and the US basically fix WTO deals. They're called the triad. Yeah. Where that sort of hit the, ro- the sort of the rocks in the early noughties with Do- Doha around, they then went to bilateral trade agreements instead, right? So if Britain was to leave the EU, I agree with you. Yes, the present government would probably be 
as bad. I don't think it could be much worse because mm. you are seeing literally the EU deliver on previous WTO agreements, which didn't go through because the Global South wouldn't accept them, primarily India and India, really, India and China, early noughties. It couldn't get much worse. But the point is you'd have a change of government and that would very easily be very easily remedied. So well, the, the TTIP thing's a case in point, right? Sorry, Lindsay, go on. There would also be a very other important question if, if there were a vote to leave, which would be a huge political crisis across the whole of the British establishment. Now, I, I accept that obviously many of the arguments put by people leaving are... Uh, wanting to leave are racist arguments, but not all of them. There are a whole number of people who don't regard immigration as the main question here, but do regard it as something where they feel they don't have control, that they don't have enough say over what goes on in the EU. And if you look historically, every time a national country has been able to vote on membership or treaty change or anything else, they've always, at least initially, voted against it for a combination of right and left-wing reasons. But we shouldn't forget this left-wing reason in there, and we shouldn't forget as well that it would mean the end of David Cameron, it would mean a, a huge upset for the... what. Tarek Ali calls the extreme centre, the you know the the right wing Labour, Lib Dems, and the sort of mainstream Tories, and I don't actually believe it would be a less favourable situation for the left politically because the way the left always advances is not mainly by who is in government, but mainly what they do outside of government in order to strengthen their position, whether it's trade union campaigns, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's uh, community campaigns, whether it's campaigns <coughs> over housing. These are the kind of issues that we have to judge it on. And in those, I think the the jury is still very, very much out as to what the, the effect of, a, of a, Brexit, a Brexit would mean. Can, can I say something on that? And I'll play a little bit devil's advocate here. The left... I'll talk about how we in Europe see Britain. We didn't even think that Britain has a left to start with. I mean, I, I know it sounds hard for people that they give given all their lives fighting, but for most of Europe, we don't talk about a British left. This is what I do when I go back to Greece and I try to explain how many people they have supported us, how they have fought different things. So the left in Britain was never seen as a very strong left. It's now the situation that is changing probably and more people are learning about uh, Corbyn. And it was Britain, like it or not, that it gave us or promoted these new liberal policies through Thatcher that now we are suffering and we are from in, um, in, in the European Union. So what I'm trying to say here, which probably I don't express it very well, is that we have to remember that the left is quite small. Even in cases like um, in other countries, we have to remember who we are. Sometimes we are self-referential. We exaggerate our power. We exaggerate how much we can do or we have done. And the truth of the British uh, referendum is that it has nothing to do with the left, the struggles of the left, the struggles of the people of Britain. So it is something that what we are trying now to do is open now a debate and, and try to find solutions. And most importantly, what we should be doing here, I think, is how we are going to create a strategy of how we deal with the situation. But I'm saying, let's not over-exaggerate of how much power we have about our struggles and how much we have achieved. Of course, I'm a little bit pessimistic, but as I said, I'm bruised. 
I mean, I think you're being slightly harsh here, Marina. I mean, uh, even with Thatcher, you know, people fought against Thatcher. The oh, yeah. miners were on strike for a year, which was uh, an absolutely record strike in this country and, and I think pretty much internationally. And I would say, in defence of the British left, that I think we have a better record, and I might say this, but on questions like war and imperialism and Palestine than a lot of, of the left around Europe. So I, I don't think, you know, there's... there's I'm not at all saying that the British left is wonderful. I'm, I'm not at all no, no, absolving myself from any, from any blame for any of that. But I do think that we shouldn't regard Britain as somehow exceptional in terms of not having a left. I think the, the left in a whole number of countries, you could say, has been challenged. And it's been challenged for a very, very simple reason. That we've had neoliberalism now for, for 30 years. And the main left parties have accepted neoliberalism. That's, that's why we have a problem now. Yeah. It's but, why Jeremy Corbyn got but, elected. But you it's ha- why Syriza got elected. But you have to remember how we see it from the other perspective. Well, well, fair I enough, now, we didn't have you know, anybody within the European Union, which belonged to the European left, to have a dialogue, to create a strategy and do something. And, and this was until li- recently. And until recently, nobody was thinking that the Labour Party will move towards the left uh, either. So, I mean... I mean, I think, I think this is... Interesting interesting actually and one of the things that, that this tells us actually and one of the things when, when you're thinking about for instance this what looks like a, a slight change in dynamic in the British Labour Party is that it actually reveals uh, the UK is much more similar to, to European states actually and uh, in that it has probably that core of like old the kind of people who would have supported PASOK kind of before Papandreou became was flattened by the memorandum um, you know who would have supported you know PSOE who would have supported uh, Parti Socialiste in, in France um, that's a little more complicated but you know so that that core of a kind of old European sort of um, socialist-ish left uh, actually does exist that core of probably sort of X, uh, X traditional industry, X manufacturing, pro- possibly even in those those towns where where that vote is also threatened by UKIP. Um, so this idea that and typically that base which unites both a, a sort of a young sort of urban uh, vote with with the much more traditional old Labour. I mean that's a that's a pattern across Europe. So here here Britain actually looks quite a lot like a, a, another European state. Uh, the question for me again is is I think balance of forces in in the UK actually I think again we we shouldn't kid ourselves. I think we shouldn't kid ourselves that a constellation of very very minoritarian left groups can really change the conversation uh, in the next two months on on. Mm-hmm on the nature of the European Union and, and the kind of exit that we should have, because I agree there are multiple possible kinds of exit. Um, one of the things that, that really struck me, having read a lot of um, the really kind of abstruse political theory on the EU, is exactly how absent uh, the idea of a mass politics is from, from most of the... Um, most of the literature on it. And, and and this, I think, is really striking. And it's one of the functions of the EU is precisely to lift these questions out of the hands of national governments and bring them much more towards the European centre. One of the one of the things that, you know, that, that isn't really addressed here is, is uh, let's imagine that we do exit the EU. Now, then the question of, of whether one then regains economic sovereignty is is, is not entirely clear. The, the, you know, whether fiscal policy is... is, is 
one has a total free hand at it. That, that's unclear. Now, Britain and non-Euro EU states are in a much better situation on this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I think I, I don't think anyone could argue that the euro should uh, should be anything other than sort of disaggregated from where it is. And whether that's a, there's a possible way of doing that without serious economic harm to Greece is an open question. Um, Aaron, you look like you. Want yeah, you're to... saying that we've only got two months. As you know, I would say everybody here is involved in minoritarian left. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. politics. But look at UKIP, look at Nigel Farage. I don't know the numbers on this, but I think UKIP, their first 20, the first 20 elections they contest us and they got less than 5%. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. And the point is, sure, we might not affect the outcome in June, but Article 50 comes, let's say we do vote to leave, Article 50 comes in, that won't really kick in for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. We, you know, If this is going to happen, we need to be shaping the debate now. Or, you know, even if we do vote to stay in, let's say it's 55-45 to stay in. I agree with you. I think it'll be ref style, close... Here, I don't think it'll be like the AV referendum. Mm. We need to have a compelling counter-argument to what the right is saying because this argument is not going to go away. And the left, by and large, isn't doing that. Um, Lindsay, go on. Well, and, and I think there's there's another important issue, which, like, like you say, even if um, nothing changes in two months' time, even if the left doesn't get a very strong hearing in the argument, which is very likely to be the case, given that um, left parties like the Greens and indeed Labour are mainly um, pro-staying in. So I think that's that's quite a likely scenario. But we also have to think about what's happening to Europe overall, that in my opinion, Europe is beginning to break up anyway, that um, the... the the collapse of Schengen, which which has happened, uh, the putting up of borders. If you look now, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, 30 years ago, Yugoslavia was one country. Now it's a whole number of little states, all of which are putting up borders and stopping people from getting through. Now, there's going to be a two or three tier Schengen. Um, there's all sorts of other problems. There's financial crisis coming, according to everybody, and the ECB has just uh, cut its interest rates uh, rates again. So this isn't a question just about what Britain does. It's about the future of the EU. And the role of the EU is this gigantic market, the biggest market in the world, but with this huge contradiction of 28 different countries, 28 political, uh, different political structures, um, all of them pandering to their own domestic concerns. Concerns. And so I think there's a, there's a big question as to what happens to the future of the EU. And I don't actually see it as an advance for it to be able to maintain itself in the way that it is at the moment. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, we see it from the Greek side quite easily. And what we see, as I said before, it's new nationalisms and the borders closing and everybody being interested on how they're going to win uh, elections within their nation state. And of course, these elections usually mean that uh, they, are try- they are becoming more and more fascist in a certain way. But I think this is for me why we should stay in and try to change the situations. I agree that the European Union is uh, not doing well at all and the future is quite bleak but I think this is why we should stay and change it because where it gets the attack is from nationalisms, fascisms that exist um, across Europe. And then 
because you mentioned that, I think. I think we could become a little bit more um, specific in certain issues. So I'm thinking, okay, Brexit, fine, fantastic. How are we are going to deal here in this country? How are we going to go about dealing with the refugee crisis? What are we going to do there? Because all this, this whenever the migrant or refugee crisis is Uh, discussed in Britain, it, it is something that really, I mean, we have to accept that Britain is very fra- far from what we are facing. And I, I'm not even sure if mm. the big publics understand the uh, magnitude of what is happening now in countries uh, like Greece. So probably we could discuss, okay, Let's say we have a Brexit. How do we go about to show solidarity, change the situation with the closed borders, as you said, and the very uh, illegal ways that the European Union is dealing with uh, the refugees right now? But Sorry. Marina, don't you think, I agree with what you're saying, There is, there's no conversation in Britain about what a migration policy outside the EU would look like. I agree with you, but the left hasn't engaged with these issues, these questions, Has, you said. Hasn't, hasn't, for decades, because they've been effectively outsourced to Brussels, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. So what would a British migration policy look like? The right, over the last, well, let's say, since 2005, since the Michael Howard sort of general election campaign, which really created a new space to the right of the Tories, which UKIP exploited, you know, they were always saying, it's Brussels, it's Brussels, it's Brussels. The left never really said anything. And I think that on trade and aid policy, particularly trade policy, right, because Britain mm-hmm. doesn't have any competence over that, it's the European Commission, un- unelected. And on migration policy, yeah, we need to have a debate on it. And I agree with you, initially, we'll get trounced. Sure. But at least that debate will be happening. Whereas right now, I just think the left is outsourcing this to Brussels and avoiding the, the issues which, at hand. Yeah, which for me, it's quite strange being in Britain because in a way, Britain was never part or very close to this European Union anyway. So it is a country that it has kept its, its distance because of reasons that they don't have to do with the, the left in this country, obviously. And I would like to see it more involved with a different government supporting a change, which, as we said, it's going to be very difficult. And as you said, it's 28 countries. But this is the difficulties of cooperation or, or uh, co- cooperating on that scale. Yes, you have 28 countries and it is difficult, but I think it's something that we should try and work with and change, the, as I said, the uh, balance of power. Uh, uh, can I just say on immigration, I think there's a lot of Um, misconceptions about it. For example, in this country, if you were from the old Commonwealth until the early mm-hmm. 60s, you could come here without any uh, restriction. And people did come mm-hmm. in very large numbers from India and uh, the Caribbean and parts of Africa and so on. Britain has always had an agreement with Ireland since independence. And even now, uh, Cameron is doing a separate deal with the Irish over the question of benefits for for EU migrants. Britain and Ireland, despite the whole the war that the IRA conducted, all these different kind of things, has always had completely free movement ever since independence. So it's not, you know, these are arguments we have to have with people. It's not impossible that large numbers of people come in. People tend to come to countries when the economy is booming because they can get jobs and they tend to leave when the economy is in crisis because they can't get jobs and they, they probably feel they would 
would rather be at home. So I personally, I'm in favour of completely free movement of, of migration to people uh, in this country and uh, the right of British people to go and live elsewhere if they if they choose to do so. I think it's, it's an inhuman policy that exists and we all probably know individuals who've suffered as a result of this, uh, of this inhuman policy. So I'm not arguing this at all, but I think to have a serious argument about immigration would be a very, very good thing, which isn't just put in terms of we don't have, you know, we don't have enough schools, we don't have enough houses. London is absolutely full of houses. It's absolutely full of houses that are empty that could be used, not just for migrants, but for all sorts of people who need looking after them. The migrants who come here are doctors and nurses and teachers and all the other things and that me. we need. <laughs> and, uh, and Marina. And uh, so I, I think we could have this serious argument. It's not an easy argument to have, but it's an important argument about what sort of society you want. And after all, if you look at London... Most people regard London as a kind of success story internationally, well, you know, for all sorts of reasons which we may or may not agree with. But in, in lots of ways, it does work that people from hundreds of countries do live here. And it's mainly poverty and, mm. and the problems that people face that make these things difficult. Can, can I say something? I, I want to take it back to the refugee crisis because I was thinking, and I'm sorry, I do tend to be more strict with the left sometimes. But I'm thinking, look, the Syrian vote, for example, how that everybody was in the streets lately and they were trying to... But we failed again there and we failed to create a link between the refugee crisis that the outer uh, borders of Europe are facing and so on and connected with what will happen here if there will be uh, a vote uh, for bombing Syria. Yeah? So I think we have, and that's why I'm saying I prefer if we are in and we try to find a solution and we fight for certain issues, I by no means can say that this is going to have the positive effect that we will all like, but I still say that there we can work together, we can make uh, these links and not seeing Britain as which some of us would do still, as an island, yeah, I, I, isolated from the rest. James? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that I would say is that there is, uh, you know, f well, for one thing, Britain has various opt-outs on EU directives on migration, right? And this is <laughs> this is why, for instance, there, there, are, there are no, uh, in the quota system that, uh, that has been drawn up, um, by the European Union in terms of like, how you deal with the, the, the numbers that there already are in the refugee crisis. Britain is nowhere on there because it, it has opted out of, yeah. uh, of that because that, that is the, the British option. Um, now, that, that's, that it seems to me... Now, now, one thing, those quotas are badly calculated. They should be calculated in terms of who has already borne the cost, um, purchasing power parity with GDP and stuff like that. I'm sure we all agree on that. Uh, it, would, it would mean that core nations and core nations, including nations like Britain, take much, much more uh, of the of the brunt of, of, of the, the migration flows. That, that, to me, would be essential. But it seems to me that we can't reach that solution by exiting, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, that, that the, the, one of the problems we have uh, at the moment here is, is that actually there, there are hugely unequal torsions within the European Union. We would all agree on that. And those, include, those include things like a British opt-out. Now, there is no way that, 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 it, that Britain should be able to opt-out of, of uh, uh, a migrant quota. Now, now it, it also seems to me that the, the problem of saying, you know, well, we can, we can sort this out outside of the European Union, I think that, that is theoretically true. But I think the severity of the crisis and its immediacy probably can't be dealt with in the course of the next year to two years without 
somehow using the institutions of the EU. And, and I find that a distasteful thing to advocate personally, but I, I don't see any other possible solution. You to mean there the is refugee body- crisis? Yeah. yeah. yeah but yeah. surely there are all sorts of other institutions, if you want, who actually but do don't far have, more. Don't, but they don't well, have equal do powers of more. compulsion that the, well, does. the, the EU is unique. The EU in, has in, got no power of compulsion. The Hungarians are saying they're not taking any refugees. There's a but, whole number but then, of countries. Then, but this can lead you to another and, argument, which is in, we would like an EU that they will force them to open the borders, mm-hmm. push them to take the refugees and so on, which is a different argument. And a very difficult one to yeah. make, Yeah, and, 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 and frankly, it's utopian. It's, that is, I mean, it's even more utopian But is it, is it not equally utopian to say that we're going to, to outside of the, the entire body of law that addresses this within Europe, we're going to leave that and do something entirely else? The law on refugees doesn't come from Europe. I know, it, it originates ultimately from, in, the, in the Convention on, on the Rights that's of the Displaced right. Person. And it comes which from, has been continually, uh, you know, uh, redefined by U.S. interests. Albright, for instance, and the operation of the UNHCR in the Great Lakes region. And re- remember here that there is a serious problem in terms of, of those rights being accorded to people who are basically not European. And, and that I think is 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 somewhere is somewhere that, that Europe has to really, you know, yes, has because to be Europe with Europe is about white migration. I mean, that is the truth that the accession countries in Eastern Europe have played the role mm. of providing cheap labour to yeah. the richer countries yeah, in yeah. the in the west of Europe. So but m- my point here is that Europe didn't make these rules about asylum and about immigration. Uh, this is done by other international bodies. It was embedded in international law after the Second World War because there was such a huge mm-hmm. refugee crisis in Europe. And in that, in fact, people from Yugoslavia had to go and be refugees in Africa because yeah, Europe was yeah. w- was war torn. So all of those things can be dealt with that don't need to be dealt with through the. But th- through that's the a, that's EU. quite a different oh, scale, isn't it? Well, and, and let's remember what the EU is actually doing. It's far from imposing quotas, it's imposing on the Syrians, leave aside the Afghans mm. who, who are being told that they, it's safe to go back yeah, to their country, yeah. which is completely, Iraq, yeah. completely yeah. disgusting, and the Iraqis, and the same with the Libyans who are about to be bombed again by the Americans. Uh, if you look at all these things, what they're, saying, what they're saying to people is either Greece puts up with them, which Greece quite rightly is saying, that well, you've done enough to us... <laughs> To our economy, and we're happy to take some refugees, but we cannot possibly mm-hmm. deal with with all the refugees from from Syria. So far from doing what you're suggesting, the EU is imposing a uh, exactly the opposite. And what's happening, even in Germany, where uh, Germany did have this policy last year, that actually, if you look at what's happening in Frankfurt last week, the alternative for Deutschland got, what, 12, 13 mm. percent of the vote. There's more elections this Sunday. No doubt the far right will do very, very well. It, all the right parties are using this question. We yeah, all know yeah, yeah, we right. all know this. So I, th- I think, again, I don't think you can really say this is any kind of safeguard. But look which institutions they came in now that the EU showed that it doesn't have the political will and it is disintegrated over the issue of re- refugees. It's in NATO, in the Mediterranean, in the Aegean Sea, mm. trying to push people at the back. So this is where we have to discuss and find a balance there of how we are going to address these issues. I wish that it will happen outside the European Union and there will be these institutions that they are better and they will come in but this is not what is happening where the EU is disintegrating, where nationalism is emerging. We have NATO coming in suddenly as a humanitarian force there which actually is going to push people expose people Mm. from the you. 
I mean, who's been the major sort of champion of human rights in the Mediterranean? It was Italy during yeah. Operation Mare Nostrum. This is the only actor in the last five years who's taken a proactive, um, you know, moral stance on this whole thing. That wasn't driven by transnational cooperation. That was a unilateral decision by the Italian government to deploy most of the Italian Navy, most of its assets in the Mediterranean, a vast operation. They were, you know, 80% of their Navy was basically being deployed for this thing, right? They saved really extensive search and rescue operations, saved a heck of a lot of people. It's replaced by Operation Triton, agreed to by the interior ministers of various member states, which is, I think, 12, I think it's sort of 12 miles around the coast of yeah. Italy and various other member states in southern Europe. So where's the argument here that sort of the humanitarian moral response is going to come from transnational cooperation when the only instance we've seen of this in the face of the refugee crisis has come from Italy, has come from an, an, a single, single member state yeah. unilaterally? Uh, James. Um, and Greece as well, actually. The, the, Gre- sorry, the, Greece. The, the Greek but, yeah. state has been pretty good, actually, in, 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 in <laughs> treading that, that kind of essentially turning a blind eye line. I don't think, I don't think the EU's current action on the refugee crisis is even defensible at all. But it just strikes me that if... if so, it's, so let's go back, let's go from what we need. What we need is across Europe a institutional and extra-institutional political and social articulation of a pro-migrant position, one that demands uh, resettlement and full citizenship rights for migrants. That seems to me obvious in what we need. Now, and then we've got to think about how we get there. And how we get there, I don't think, is by Britain leaving the EU. I just, I, given, given the nature of the exit vote, given that, uh, you know, if you are intensely hostile to migration, if, you, if migration you put as a, uh, an item of most concern, then you are 15 times more likely to be pro-Brexit, for instance. So the, the way that this vote is lining up in the UK, it seems to me that it would be read in line with, you know, with the, the measures being taken, for instance, in Denmark. Um, you know, this is, you know, uh, Denmark insisting on you know, stripping, uh, stripping asylum seekers of anything more more valuable than uh, you know, ten thousand kroner, I think. Um, but you know, th- this kind of thing, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that you get there by doing that. I, I can't Nobody's see. Nobody's saying the, that, but there's two but, options but on the table here, right? That is what you're saying. There's you're two options on the table. Well, no, yes, we're not saying we're not saying that. What we're saying is that actually the EU is a hindrance to dealing. Uh, with these problems. And, mm. uh, and you know, in terms of when you say about who's going to vote for Brexit, I think a lot of Labour people will vote no, myself. It's always put in terms of that they're all racist. I don't think that's the case. I think they're people who feel left behind, who feel that the European laws actually favour other countries, whether they're right or wrong about that, and who may see immigration as one issue, but certainly not the main issue. And I think people will be surprised at how many Labour people no, that's just my hunch. No, I think there's a strong I, Labour exit yeah, vote, and I think yeah. it comes from from people say, you know, there's a. Uh, I was speaking to someone who lives in Grimsby and was saying, you know, that European fisheries policy is a hugely disadvantageous. Uh, anyway, so you know, I, I think that absolutely that absolutely exists. But you know, in Britain, it's it's very clearly keyed. To, to this in terms of like all of its political articulations. I, I mean, that, that seems inarguable. I'm I mean, the front you page at, of the Express, you, of the Daily Mail. Sure, um, but you if know. you look at a map of this thing, it's London, it's Wales and it's Scotland that wants to stay in and it's England that wants to leave. And that, I think, like Lindsay's saying, I think that really transcends party affiliation, actually. I really think it does. You know, the most Eurosceptic parts of England, North East... Hard to believe, right? People think it's, you know, sort of affluent Surrey or something. It's the northeast. It's sort of ex-mining communities. So I think there's really something to what Lindsay's saying here. If we're not offering a, an explanation, an argument, 
against staying in, I think we're doing these people a disservice because we're not offering them an explanation mm. about, you know, their material conditions, right? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I, I, I would I would strongly advocate, you know, if you're going to if you're going to stay in then you have to make a case about sort of revoking uh, that kind of very orthodox political independence of the ECB, restructuring things like the common agricultural policy, then you have to make it a redistributive fund, you have to change the access of ex-Comic-Con countries to things like structural relief. I mean, all this kind of stuff has to be uh, you know, there somewhere in a, a sort of pro-European argument. Uh, again, as I, I feel like I should highlight one that I'm very sceptical about. But it seems to me that you've not answered what happens in the course of the next two years about the refugee crisis in the case mm. of Brexit. Well, I think the refugee crisis will be dealt with or not, regardless of whether it's the EU. The truth is that the, the, there is this push factor, if you want to put it like that, which is the wars. That's what's driving many of these people. Mm-hmm. And the other real thing that's driving people, particularly from parts of Africa, is poverty. And obviously, in lots of cases, it's both. Um, so it's dealing with those, it seems to me, is a very, very important question, which is one reason they're desperate to get these talks over Syria, because even the people who've been conducting these wars for the last few years realise that uh, that this isn't uh, kind of getting them anywhere. But uh, the truth is this has to be something that's fought for politically. Uh, and while there are many people anti-immigrant in this country, I'm also struck at how many people are very, very in support of the refugees. Mm. And that is both in terms of people going to Calais, raising money for them, going to Lesbos, all sorts of people in Britain who are very, very committed to these things. So I think this is, a, this is something where the argument is it's still up for grabs, Can I just really, add to that, and that, actually? And that the left has to fight for this. I just add to that. I mean, you know, so I always bring it down to where I'm from. Dorset, you know, blue as you like. Uh, I think every councillor in Bournemouth, but one is, is Tory, one's green as well, right? That's interesting. So you talk to people in Bournemouth and they want to leave the EU and they want to accept refugees. They're saying, we don't want... I, I, don't, I don't agree with this. Yeah, I, but I'm, we are not there. I'm, this I'm, is not what I was no, asking. This is, this is what a lot the of... The extent right- of what is happening and how Greece, how fast Greece is going to turn into a huge detention camp, yeah. I don't think it has sunk in uh, the mind of British people. And we no, are talking happening. about Calais, three to 6,000 people. Sure. This we could accommodate... But, very easily, no crisis there. Sure, and that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in Britain, you have, I think, you know, it's like the political class is very happy to have white migration, but the working class actually that's their grievance, right? Because in their mind, the problem of immigration is, you know, people, for instance, in low-pay service work are taking their jobs, you know, depressing pay in really specific sectors, right? Trades, for instance, and you know, they would be very happy to bring in. I don't think you know we'd have far more refugees here if that's if that's what we're discussing. I, I mean, think if I we left, say polling tells us that Britain is is pretty much the only country in the twenty eight states of the EU that is more hostile to internal migration yeah. than it is to external. Yeah, and um, even Farage had to accommodate that because he said, you know, we would have more. Mar- you know, even Farage has to accommodate that politically because he recognises that sentiment within much of the public. Right, we've got less than five minutes left. <laughs> we've got three minutes left. You've got one minute each. Okay. Sum up your arguments about why you want to stay in or leave the European Union. James. Look, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm only moved slightly by by contingent circumstances that I think probably the political consequences of Brexit are probably worse in terms of articulating that trans-European demand. I actually think probably the migrant crisis is the rock on which the European Union's project will break itself. But I think we have to stay in and make sure that break goes in our way.
Something similar that, yes, the EU is disintegrating, but it is not disintegrated because we have fought neoliberalism and we are doing quite well. It is winning because there are nationalisms and fascisms emerging anywhere, everywhere in Europe. So what I don't see is what will be the strategy of the left in uh, the case of Brexit. In my case, which you, you could call it utopian or too optimistic if you want, but I say let's stay in, let's try to find to change to fight to change things inside and the only way i can see for this happening is starting from the bottom connecting the european movements that exist and we are in solidarity then trying to change national governments which play a key role in the policies of the eu and how a lot of the treaties are interpreted and try to ch- change the balance of powers in there I think the EU is failing because neoliberalism is failing and I think that it's it's cracking under the weight of its uh, of its inability to to actually deal with the economic crisis it's cracking under the weight of the misery in which millions of people are living as a result of neoliberalism and the effect on work and uh, and living standards and so on and I think the left actually has to have something to say rather than leaving rather than saying okay the EU's fine or it's better than nothing which seems to be the argument that's been put. I think we have to say there is an alternative and it's not about racism, it's not about insularity, it's about the left putting forward uh, an egalitarian policy across Europe which isn't dependent on these institutions. Well, on that note, I hope that's provoked a few interesting thoughts to the listeners. Uh, my mind isn't actually made up, and I think that's true for a heck of a lot of people out there. I'm really inclined to leaving, but I think, like you say, it's really close for so many so people. So you're our target audience, yeah? I'm the target audience. <laughs> I'm going to have this conversation myself almost. My name's Aaron Mastani. This is Navarro Media. Thanks again to our guest this week. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.